Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the No Bad Dogs podcast with me, Tom Davis, America's Canine Educator, the podcast where we love, live, and of course, we work with dogs. Today, I have a guest. Her name is Myrna Malini. She is a veterinarian, also specializing in the relationship between humans and animals. Um, Myrna has written several, several, several books and has been on many different TV shows and podcasts talking about the relationship between dog and their owners. And she has great, great contributing information to all dog owners, no matter what you believe in as far as what training style and how you should do things. She has so many different studies and so many different great aspects in learning more about your dog and how to become a better dog owner. And so we are going to welcome Myrna on to the No Bad Dogs podcast and talk about dogs and the relationship with humans. Here we go. Hello. Hey, good morning, Marna. How are you? It's Tom. Oh, I'm just fine. What about you? Good. Things are good. Just introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are, what you do, and um, give yourself a, a nice little introduction. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Myrna Milani. I am a veterinary ethologist, and I have been in both veterinary medical practice, and now I am doing... Um, behavioral and bond work full-time. Uh, ethology is just a fancy word for those people who study the behavior of animals in their natural environment. So for me, that means the behavior of companion animals in their natural environment, which is the physical and the mental space in which they live with us. Hmm. And when you say, when you say you you study them and work with them in their natural environment, that means in this case, in their homes. Well, actually, um, over the years, I have discovered that most people have an excellent idea about what their dogs are doing at home. So, if I can see those same dogs and those same people in the clinic environment and give those people some cues about different ways to respond or rather, in most cases, not respond to the dog, I get twice as much information. Right. And this has been a particular boon since the advent of technology whereby people can share videos and pictures with me. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, a discussion I recently had with a client is that is the effect videoing can have on some animals. So you have to be very careful about how you do it. And especially if you're talking about aggressive dogs. 
And you, this goes, yeah, what, go ahead. What do you mean by that? You, um, what do you mean by they, it, do you mean actually physically having a camera out recording them has an effect on their behavior? Yes, or even using a cell phone. Really? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me because a lot of times when people think of the human-animal bond, they think of some warm, you know, warm, fuzzy thing and how dogs keep our heart rate and blood pressure down mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. And, of course, if you do behavioral problems like I do, <laughs> you know, that's not the whole story. Right. Uh, but the other part of the bond is that the primary way animals learn is via emotional contagion and social learning. So emotional contagion is the animal's ability to pick up changes, physiological changes, body language changes that signify a change in emotion. Uh, Probably the most familiar example to most people uh, are stampeding herds. Mm-hmm. We normally don't think about it when you see a herd of cattle or a herd of horses, and they've all got their heads down and they're grazing. But there is part of them that is attuned to the physiology and body language of those animals who are perceived as more fit. And if those animals become anxious, then the rest of the herd starts mm, to become yeah. restless. Okay? And... It seems reasonable to me that back when humans uh, started domesticating animals, that savvy herdsmen figured this out pretty doggone quick. Yeah. Because, if, yeah, if they didn't, they'd die, right. right? And they probably figured out that if they stayed calm, they could have a calming effect on the rest of the herd. Yeah, you mean you mean like the the sh- the shepherd if you will, the person who's in charge. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. So Right. So you're so I want to go back cuz that's interesting. I've never heard I've I mean I've heard it but so when when new dogs come into our facility just so you know like we will take a picture of them and you say hey, welcome to the academy or whatever. Um and sometimes people will say their owners will say, "Oh, he's camera shy or something." And part of me's like um, no, they're not. But the other part of me is like, actually, yes, they are. And I, and I think that that ties in with what you were saying about, so what you're saying is, is um, and correct me if I'm wrong or, or, or guide me through this, they're not necessarily um, changing their behavior because of the physical camera. They're changing their behavior because the way that you act with the piece of camera in your hand, which means you change, you're stiff, you, is that what you're saying? Well, the other part of this is that the one place direct eye contact um, is important to dogs is establishing their relationship with other dogs or people. Right. And a lot of times, for example, when dogs are in, when they're unsure of themselves, and if they perceive their, their lead, uh, the, the owner... Mm-hmm. as a viable reference point that they can trust, they will automatically orient toward that person. Uh. So if 
when they orient toward that person, what they actually see is someone who is looking at a cell phone mm. or gotcha. looking through a lens. It can confuse uh, some dogs. And uh, interestingly, I was reading a, um, a study of problem-solving ability in dogs, and one of the dogs there uh, was, was a, originally a street dog. It was a rescue transport. That dog took one look at that camera. That dog would not do anything in front of the camera. Now, do you think that that was... Could, it, could, could these circumstances have anything to do with um, any imprinting that the dog may have had at an early age from maybe a, a negative experience from another human? Um, it, certainly, it certainly could be. The, the other thing is that I think visually um, knowing that a person is mentally divided. And if you talk to, if you talk to professional photographers about this, mm-hmm. and you see evidence of this on social media at, um, all the time, people videoing animals in distress. Yeah. You know, and you're, it's like, well, why don't you put down the phone and help the animal? Or, yeah, I, I see that that dog is stalking that kid. You could have just told me that. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need a video of that. But the other part of that is also flashes. I can't imagine... Like the flash from a, the phone? You the mean? flash from a camera. Yeah. Yeah, in a low-light situation. And with free-roaming dogs, I mean, how, who knows how many uh, wildlife cams they've triggered out there. Right. So that's, that, yeah. So that's that's interesting um, that that happens, and especially like you were saying in today's, in today's age, um, you know, and that's what I find so so fascinating about your research and all the work that you've been done. I mean, you've put books out back in back in the early '80s talking about the weekend dog and some of the books that I, I looked up online that dates back to you know back in the early '80s. And you've combined all this information, and now we live like back in. It looks like you put out a book in '84, the weekend dog. Is that right? Um, I think that was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So you look back that far versus where we're at now, obviously the the connection and the relationships that we have with dogs is probably far different, but we've evolved also in technology, and some of that may be good for our dogs, and a lot of it or most of it may be bad, or part of it may be bad. So when you said um, that, when you talked about eye contact with, with the dogs and things like that, and it changes everything... Um, when an, when a dog just this just is just talking like that this isn't this isn't th- I guess let's just generalize this this isn't you know whenever I do a, a podcast and or a online consultation from somebody that's via over the phone or Skype you know I, I always talk about generalization I can't because all, all dogs are different and you may get that one weird case right. where this yeah. you know some of the some of the basic things won't apply some of the basic foundations but when you say dogs look at owners for direction and guidance, what do you find? And for me, what I 
really focus on and, and what people come to me for for professional advice is behavior on dogs that become fearful, dogs that are, are anxious, um, dogs that are reactive. And what I find generally, and we could touch, we could, we can get into this here in a little bit. Um, the fearful dogs that I work with are, are more or less what I see instead of what the owner thinks that they have as far as aggression, where if you get a dog at the other end of the leash that's barking habitually or barking for everything, for every dog, for every person, a lot of people would assume that that's, your dog is aggressive. And I guess in some state of mind, maybe it could be aggressive behavior, but the intentions aren't uh, malicious or the, there's no real intentions of actually hurting the other person or the other animal. But what do you find, <clears throat> have you found over the years of all of your research and, and database and everything that we are slowly moving away from the the good connection that we have versus um, all of the all of the materialistic things like really really nice beds and um, really nice cookies for their dogs at night and and things like that. Are we moving? And I'm and I'm not really biased one way or the other. But are we moving further away or are we moving closer to understanding our animals, our dogs? Well, I I think that since I am. Uh probably older than you, <laughs> and let's not get into that. Um, I, I can honestly say, and I will take this even back further than me, that beginning in the post-World War II era, mm -hmm. we have become a society that knows less and less about normal dog behavior and more and more about training. And the two are not connected. What, what two uh, are connected? Training and what? Training and behavior. Gotcha. Like uh, a friend of mine who's a trainer said, you know, training is like what kids learn at school. Mm -hmm. Behavior is like what they learn at home, mm. like self-control, self-reinforcement. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. And, and patience. And, I mean, just as there are a lot of straight-A students out there, you wouldn't want to turn your back on. Right. Uh, I have known some graduates, obedient canine, you know, prize winners. I wouldn't turn my back on either. So you're saying... And it's, it's like comparing um, peaches and apples. But what happens is that if you don't know that dogs normal behavior, mm -hmm. then the dog becomes a blank slate onto which you can project anything you want. So let's, uh, an example here, and this is a dog from average uh, pet dog breeding. I'm not talking mm -hmm. about rescue transports here. If you have a puppy that was raised in a companion dog household uh, had a bitch with normal, uh, good maternal skills. Mm -hmm. uh, from the time that puppy's eyes and ears opened, that puppy's kind of job was to pay attention to the mother mm -hmm. and to take their cues from her. Now, if you think about this, and let's go to wild dogs and wolves, mm -hmm. if 
a if the mom or a uh, parental substitute senses a predator, they are going to start moving. They are not going to turn around and call or otherwise orient four, six, eight puppies. And if they do, they're going to be out of the gene pool. Mm -hmm. So the first lesson that puppies learn is to pay attention to their moms. Right. Okay. Now, let's take a puppy. Let's take like, oh, I don't know. Uh, something uh, adorable. Oh, heck, they're all adorable, aren't they? <laughs> but anyhow, let's take a, a golden retriever puppy. And this golden retriever puppy, she's been taken away from her litter mates in her home, and she's hanging around the kitchen with you, and you accidentally drop a book on the floor. And what does the puppy do? The little puppy automatically whips around and looks at you, wide-eyed, maybe even trembles a little. Okay, how you handle that is going to set the course for your relationship with that puppy. Right. Right. So if, yeah. Go, I'm sorry. If, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I just, I, yeah. I love all this information, and it's something that I, I preach. Um, and, and what I find is, is I don't, um, the way that I say the same thing, which is interesting, um, is I, I tell people when you are not even specifically puppies, but say you get, um, you know, just a new dog in general that may be, you know, already mature and whatever. Mm -hmm. I say, you know, the difference between, I, and I always try to relate it to kids because I feel like um, mo the majority of the clients that I work with have children. And so I say, look, I say, if your dog or your child fell down and there was something something that happened that made them semi-uncomfortable and they looked at you, the big difference is going to be you turning and saying, you know, say they fell off their bike. You as a parent have two options to make that outcome either positive or negative. You can either say, nice try, buddy, get up and try it again. Or you can put your hands on your face and scream at the top of your lungs and run over and rush your kid to the emergency room for a scratch. And that that those two paths will dictate like you just said about the puppy how the animal or how the the, the child is going to look at you so they say oh my gosh is this a big deal when the book falls and if you make it a big deal then it will be but if you don't it won't right yeah okay. and what you want to do is you want to normalize the behavior um so like desensitize. so you, you you just go over you pick up the book and say got it covered turn and walk away right uh, but if you pick up that puppy and cuddle that puppy, exactly. and I usually have uh, a lot of my clients because I do see a lot of fear, uh, fear-based aggression, mm -hmm. and fear-based aggression in canine behavioral terms, more often than not, is a lot of smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that you would ever see a truly dominant, confident right. dog do. Uh, but by the same token, these dogs tend to have a lower stimulus threshold. They tend to explode when they reach it, and their behavior is unpredictable. So, erotic almost. Yeah, because what tips them over their tipping point 
maybe some something so insignificant we don't even notice it. And this is why so often people say, oh, he must have rage syndrome. Everything was fine. Well, everything wasn't fine. Uh, like this, yeah, I mean, this time of year in your area, certainly in my area, the amount of uh, stimulus outside is unbelievable. I mean, we've got uh, dispersal of wildlife. We've got all kinds of stuff going on out there. Mm-hmm. And we've got all these uh, wild animal and free-roaming domestic animal pheromones communicating messages like, if I catch you here, I'll knock your block off, and oh, oh, baby, oh, baby, oh, baby. And, I mean, who knows what this communicates to a dog? Right. What do you, what do you find, Myrna, what do you find more important um, with a puppy? Do you find training more important, or do you find behavior development more important, or do you think that they should be compatible equally throughout the adolescent time, you know, say – you know, anything under the two years old? What do you th- what do you think is the most important thing for people out there to be focusing on? I you know I would I would like to um, I would like to see a more mindful approach um, and not take a one size fits all approach. Uh, to me, the the animals, the puppies, I am most concerned about are the ones on either end of the spectrum, the ones that hang back and the little fireballs that run up your leg. Mm -hmm. And the ones that hang back, I think that those puppies need to be in a class with similar puppies. Um, I have trouble with the puppy free-for-all out there. Right. Uh, um, Meanwhile, the puppies that come charging over and race up your leg, they don't need to burn off energy. They need to learn self-control. And I know that some people will say the sky will fall if you keep those puppies at home and help them develop those skills first before you put them in a class. Um, I think that that's really what we need to do. There's a lot of stuff out there about socializing puppies and even socializing transport dogs as much as possible as soon as possible. Mm. And if you look at the socialization studies that were done, ah, I don't understand how they've been given so much power. What What were the studies? The studies, the one that uh, people quote the most is Scott and Fuller, and they were behavioral psychologists, and they only used, they had dogs from five different breeds, and they were all lab dogs. And the uh, litters were basically kept under stimulus-deprived conditions. And then they dragged these poor puppies out, and they tested them. Well... The whole thing was inhuman. <laughs> right, they were kind of, they weren't, they were, they weren't really set up for success there. Right, but I, I think the other thing is one, one thing that I share with my clients. Um, I share links on uh, the canine sense of smell. 
and also a lovely little video uh, that I, I found online, I think on Science Direct or somewhere. It's a video game that shows the the identical scene as viewed through the eyes of a cat, a dog, a mouse, <coughs> excuse me, a hawk, a rat, and a bumblebee. Hmm. And of all the vision, the hawk is closest to us. Really? And if and if you look at the scene through the eyes of the cat or the dog, <coughs> excuse me, you would you would think it is a gray and rainy, foggy dusk or dawn. When you see it as the hawk sees it, it's like, oh well, yeah, it's broad daylight. Now we all know this, but when our dogs do something we don't understand, we forget. Um, the old factory video, the short video, uh, based on all of Alexandra Horowitz's work on canine olfaction. And again, we all know they have a greater sense of smell than us. But what we don't recognize when we take that dog out and let's say we're socializing uh, a puppy in, in a novel environment, let alone a, a transport dog from down south who may have gone through a capture and uh, rescue transport system uh, on a par with those alien abduction films from the 50s. Um, and we say you got to socialize him, and you put that dog down in a park. That dog or that puppy is not only going to be smelling the present, that those animals are going to be smelling up to six weeks in the past. Wow. And also the future, depending on what future, depending on the direction and speed of the wind. Wow. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's Yeah, crazy. and that is a tremendous amount of stimulus overload. Yeah. And in a way, it's rather miraculous that they do so well. Um. You, know, I am, you have to. You almost have to have a, a really, really balanced uh, animal to to go into an example. Like I, I really discourage people going to dog parks only because I've I've just seen more negative things come out of them than not. Yeah. And um, you almost think you know the way that you just said that. Wow, it makes a lot of uh, it makes a lot of sense on on why dogs get so insecure there is because their their sensory overload, not only from the other, the other physical in in the in the moment dogs like in front of you trying to play or trying to be rude or mount you or bite you or whatever, but it's also them trying to digest what you just said up to six weeks of all the other dogs that were there, and that's a lot. That is a lot, and plus wildlife, you know, and people, and people smoking and and, and yeah. doing you know who knows what and treats flying around, so. Um, and, and definitely, if I am dealing with a dog that has any kind of problems, I say no daycare, no dog park. Uh, and, the, and the reason for that, you know, yeah, granted, I'm living in, you know, frugal New England. But a lot of people who take their dogs to these places do so because their dogs have problems. And somewhere along the line, they heard somebody say, 
that a well-exercised dog is a well-behaved dog. And so that's what they're hoping. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because it's easier for a dog to learn from another dog, I would rather not uh, the dogs whose behavior we are trying to make more acceptable uh, spend time at what is basically a reform school. (laughs) (laughs) I find, too, too that the dog parks are... It just, I've just seen so much. One of my veterinarians told me, there's two things you never see at a dog park, a dog trainer or a veterinarian. And, and I thought that was quite funny. But I think a lot of times, too, some of the dog parks, um, and I get it. I always tell people, look, I love the idea of having a secluded area for dogs that the state or county or what have you provides. They fence it off. They spend a ton of money. But like you said, a lot of people who go there are usually people who have issues with their dogs. And then you get a cesspool of a bunch of kind of – I don't know, misbehaved dogs, sometimes, not all the time. Um, but I, I find it to be just lazy a lot of times. People don't, people don't want to walk their dog. People don't want to train their dog or work with their dog on any mental stimuli uh, level, and they just want to drive to the dog park, sit on Facebook, and let their dogs do whatever. Yeah, or, or else uh, meet chicks or good-looking guys. Yeah, yeah. Either way, they're not paying attention to their dogs. Yeah, I went to... Uh, yeah, so... Go ahead. Uh, but that, that also, that is the, the, the dif- a difference in our society. Uh, and it has, has changed. We, and definitely since 9-11, we have become a much more fearful society. And relative uh, to the study of the human-animal bond, interestingly, some of the people who first started studying uh, the physiological effects of the human-animal bond were looking at the effects human companionship had on animals, particularly dogs. Hmm. But there was no money in it. Right. Right, in terms of funding. Uh, nobody cared about that. I mean, nobody has ever said that Homo sapiens is a humble species. <laughs> so then all of this became what dogs do for us, right. uh, the emotional support dog. And, and uh, we were, you know, people who were glued to their television sets during um, 9-11 you know, they saw multiple images of these uh, support dogs and these, these, you know, rescue dogs. And that just got burned into the, the public psyche. And um, I'm, I'm with you that I find that my clients who can best make the transition from a reactor to a a person who initiates the interactions and cues the dog regarding the the proper behavior are more likely those who have successfully raised kids. Um, Correct. Right. And in fact, um, there have been some studies that indicate that dogs are actually closer to toddlers. And toddlers are closer to uh, kit to dogs. Dogs are closer to toddlers. Toddlers are closer to dogs than uh, 
dogs are to wolves and toddlers are to primates. And this has to do with the physiological and behavioral effects of domestication. Right. That makes sense. So domestication essentially suspends animals in a physiologically and behaviorally immature state. Now, the interesting thing about it, um, if you've never read the Russian fox studies, they're a real goldmine of information. Um, And if you're not familiar with them, basically what they did, they started in 1939. They bred... uh, farm foxes, because at that time Russia was uh, dependent on the fox fur trade for mm-hmm. income. Uh, it's very difficult to, cha- uh, to tame a fox. You can't do it. So what they decided, they would just breed the friendliest males and the friendliest females. Right. And the possibility that behavioral had a gen- genetic component was so outrageous that the the group was basically banished to the University of Siberia. <laughs> now, if you ever have worked for the government, you know that there are there it's a great place to be if you want to do your work in peace, right? The further away you are, better off you are. So, in 20 generations of just breeding the friendliest males to the friendliest females, there was no line breeding, no brother to sister, mother to the son, son to daughter, nothing like that. 20 generations, they would have a fox come running up to you, wagging his tail like a dog. Hmm. Pro- problem is, the fox looked different. The How fox so? had bigger ears, bigger eyes, shorter muzzle, a downier tricolored coat, uh, tails started to curve upward, um, and they were much more vocal. Hmm. So they... Sounds like a husky. Is, well, what they were is they were more... They call this neoteny. They looked more like fox puppies. Huh. Fox kids. Yep. Okay? And they these animals also were physiologically different. They handled cortisol differently. They handled serotonin differently. Basically, they were primed to eat, sleep, and play. Wow. So they evolved into what the human wanted it to be? Well, what happened is they still, on our purebred dogs, they still have this potential, uh, this neoteny. Mm -hmm. But our demands on them have changed. The also, stand, the breed standard has changed. Is that what you mean? Well, no. What we expect our dogs to do from oh, us. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. Obviously, we don't expect them just to uh, eat, drink, and play, right? right? I mean, we like to think this is true, but then we relate to them in such a way that we inadvertently mm-hmm. throw them into a protective situation. If they can handle it, it doesn't matter. But if they can't, then this just opens this Pandora's box of stress-related behavioral and health problems. Yep. The other thing to keep in mind about domestication is in in dogs, this isn't something that occurred 10 to 40,000 years ago, depending on who you read. 
this is a dynamic process. So I can show you pictures of Labs and Goldens from the 1950s and 2000. You will look at those pictures from the 50s and you will say, no, 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 no. That's, no, that's not a lab. That's not a golden. Look at those little ears. Look at that long muzzle. Look at those beady eyes. And that is because in some segments of our society, people prefer the more infantile features, the so-called block-headed, right? Block-headed lab, block-headed golden. Mm -hmm. And what they don't realize is that that look, if you change that look, you're going to change that animal's physiology. You cannot change one without changing the other. Right, there's a reason those, those things are there. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the fox domestication studies are still going on now, uh, and these animals are constantly changing. Uh, and they actually, yeah, so, I, I, you know, I look at the golden, I remember the golden from the dark ages when I was in vet school, No health problems. I mean, it was just so rare when we would see one uh, in the clinic. And if we did, you could do anything to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at most, they might touch you with their nose. That was it. But you rarely saw them because they were so doggone healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, not, yeah, number one cancer dog now. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, um... I was just going to say about the Goldens, they, uh, do you think, well, I mean, there's many different speculations you can say, but it's been like one of the top ranked uh, dogs that bite in the United States because of how many they are, how many of them there are. Um, and they've been probably, see, a lot of, a lot of my clients don't understand genetics and pedigree, which I think is, is into, well, back then it was probably important as well, but I think today it's even more important. Because dogs are becoming as equivalent as as far as 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 our lives in today's society, they're they're becoming as equivalent as a nice purse or a nice vehicle or whatever what have you. And not all the time, but <clears throat> some of the times people buy a certain breed because they want a certain breed, but they don't realize the the origin of the pedigree or the genetics. And specifically with German shepherds, I probably sign up three to five new German Shepherds in my facility every single week, every week. And I see good genetics, but most of the time I see very bad genetics. And people, I did a consultation yesterday actually from a a lady from Massachusetts, and I was explaining to her, you know, the, the difference in, the different shades, if you will, of a German Shepherd. And you know, you have working lines, you have you have show lines, you have pet lines. There's all sorts of different things, and they all can branch off again to very specific things that will actually dictate the way that your dog's going to be. And so, interesting enough, I find that the German Shepherd has just been, it seems, just overbred, and or maybe just people want them so much, because when you, I think the the, the everyday pet owner buys a German Shepherd thinking that there's no difference between a working line or they don't even, they, they have no idea that there's different shades of these dogs. And so when you get, I, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. 
Well, I, I think there's there. This is a, this is an incredibly complex <laughs> uh, issue here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of our purebreds are in deep trouble, uh, and it has to do with the law of unintended consequences. For the last fifty years or so, we have been selectively eliminating the most successful companion animals from the gene pool via spay and neuter. Right. And we did not think about that at the time. Um, and so, so when you're... that happens, and, and the, other, the other part of this, Thomas, is that traditionally show breeders and breeders of working dogs, mm-hmm. when they sold dogs as pets, they were selling them uh, based on the belief that these dogs did not meet their standards. And they had this mistaken impression that any dog could survive in a pet home environment, where I would argue that it is a heck of a lot easier for a German Shepherd or any other dog uh, to make it in the show ring or on the field than in a companion home Hmm. because there are strict rules Hmm. in hunting and in the show. Whereas going into a companion home, none of them are the same. And the lives that we are leading... um, in our home, we we lead much much more complex lives than in the past, mm. and so we you mean, are. Do you mean yeah. just bu- do you mean just busier? In in terms um, in in terms of our lives, yeah. um, we have divorce. Mm. We have you know people moving in, people moving out, partners moving in. Uh, you know, it used to be that people would, you know, graduate from a high school or college, get a job, do it for the rest of their life, settle down and raise their kids, sometimes even in the house that their parents had. Right. Now we have a generation of uh, people that it is normal for them to change jobs. That is just built right in. Okay, establishing and protecting the territory is the number one animal priority. So every time you move... Instinctually? You mean? Like, that's their number one instinct for all dogs? Yep. Okay, cool. Establish and protect the territory. It takes precedence over food, water, sex... Really? Uh, everything else. Awesome to know. I didn't know that. And this explains that phenomena that... Uh, you might see uh, in some of your patients that I do, uh, the majority of my aggressive dog clients have been trained using food. Okay. And what happens with these dogs is that 95, maybe as much as 98% of the time, they obey that command. But in that small percentage of the time, when it really counts, Where it when matters. they, yeah, when it matters, you could wave 
filet mignon in front of that dog, and that dog is still going to go after that letter yeah. carrier. So great, and great and yeah. that is the the you know the physical and, and mental territory, and. So, yeah. What would it's a great point, and I'm glad that you said that. That's interesting. Um, so, in the dog training world, I'm sure you're aware there's all sorts of different methods. Um, you know, there's there's um, uh, traditional balance training. There's purely positive. There's all sorts of different stuff going on. Um, and and I like to. This is kind of a side note. I when I work with dogs, I want to be ninety eight percent, like you said. I want to be mostly purely positive to shape and mold and free shape behaviors and create a good relationship and really put no pressure or negativity on a dog. But in your opinion, what would a dog owner do in a situation like that? So say we we taught a behavior such as sit, stay, wait, heal, etc. And then when it came down to it. The primitive instinct, so so interesting you said that because I didn't know that, and that really gives me a lot of good information moving forward with my clients, is the first instinct, and what I see is a lot of fearful dogs, which makes sense. So when you get a, I'll paint you a quick picture, when you get a dog in that has fearful, um, or just just a fearful dog, um, nervous, vulnerable, scared, timid, whatever, uh, and they have no trust in their owner, and food comes out, and they're like, okay, nothing's really going on. I'll take the food. I'll accept the food. I'll work for food. And then as soon as maybe another dog or another person, an unfamiliar person comes out, the dog switches gears and goes immediately into defense. And the food doesn't matter. So in your opinion, behaviorally, what, what would be a good thing or a good way or a good method to redirect that behavior and really take control of the situation and stop letting an insecure fearful dog make decisions okay if we if we look at that situation yeah in terms of ethology i i use a canine parental model so an, an analogy i don't know if it's an analogy i don't know what it is but an example i use it compares training Behavior using behaviorism, reward or punishment training, versus an ethological model. Trainers sit around and they argue for hours about how much time you have between when the dog misbehaves and you whap the dog with a rolled-up newspaper. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is punishment, guys. In the parental model, you keep a rolled-up newspaper in every room in your house and one in your pocket, and the instant that dog misbehaves, you whack yourself over the head with a rolled-up newspaper, and you say, bad owner, bad owner, bad owner, mm -hmm. because you were not paying attention. Mm -hmm. You want to distract the dog before the dog displays the problem behavior, because once the dog does, the most you can do is stop the behavior. And obviously, with aggression, you have to. But you have lost the opportunity to teach that dog anything about the proper response should that same situation occur again. Right. So you want to be one step ahead of the dog instead of one step behind. And this is a, a difficult transition uh, for people to make and especially those who are used um, to using reactive 
other reinforcement training, mm-hmm. like uh, treat training or, or even punishment, because they're always one step behind. Right. So the goal, what you're saying, Myr- Myrna, is the goal would be in a perfect world, which you would have to almost have in order for a lot of this to happen, meaning, so I, I did a podcast by myself uh, a couple weeks ago talking about the public will always be the deciding factor in your obedience or your dog's behavior. Because even if you do a great job with socialization and, and, and obedience and impulse control, you're gonna, you can't control the variable of the public, which makes it extremely hard to desensitize and to do real-world training because you may get one person that you say, hey, please don't touch my dog, they're in training, and they're still going to come over <laughs> And they're still going to wrap their arms around your nervous, fearful dog and get bit, and it's going to be your dog's fault. And so in a perfect world, you're saying that try to be ahead of the curve by doing some, some maybe some focused um, exercises to get the dog focused and redirected on you. Is that what you're well, saying? and this is basically with, with my dogs, uh, with my patients. And like I said, these are aggressive dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the first thing I do when I see these dogs at the clinic um, is nothing. Right. <laughs> I have the owner come in, take the leash off the dog, um, and let the dog just do whatever the dog does. Mm-hmm. And I inform my clients before um, the, uh, the consultation so they know exactly what's going to happen. And I tell them I want, to, I want them to wear comfortable clothes and maybe bring some coffee if they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to sit there and we are going to go over the history and we're going to talk about what is going on um, and why uh, the dog is doing this mm-hmm. and about ways to handle it. Um, and all I ask them to do is completely ignore the dog. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful. And I'm seeing, I am seeing these animals in a veterinary clinic that is in a converted Victorian farmhouse on a main highway. Uh, the room I am in has um, windows that go all, almost all the way to the floor. And there's a view to the house next door where they have a couple dogs and uh, there are kids and vehicles going in and out. And then the other window, you can see the highway. On the other side of the door is the waiting room to the veterinary clinic. And they are seeing patients in other rooms. So it is a busy place with lots of distractions. And just by keeping... These owners engaged and focused, um, and I get them, you know, to lighten up and laugh because, boy, that helps those dogs, and relax. Mm -hmm. We can start out with a dog who is checking out everything and barking and carrying on every time somebody comes into the door. I would say, oh, well over 80% of those dogs are down and sleeping. Um, within an hour, hour and a half. And we did nothing except relieve them of the protective, the territorial right. protective function. That's all we did. So by, disen- by disengaging um, with the dog, 
meaning the owner isn't, hey, Fido, sit, hey, Fido, stay, hey, Fido, come here, hey, Fido, you know, all these and, things. And worrying about the dog. Right. So by because dis- what happens, and, and I, I ask my uh, clients to keep their dogs in their own yard, too, mm-hmm. uh, because they take them out, and inevitably these dogs are marking multiple times. And they walk them around the neighborhood where everybody else's dog is out there marking multiple times. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder why the dog aggresses when the dog sees certain dogs. Uh, now, the good news is when, when they do aggress, you can tell what the dog's level of confidence is uh, based on their targets. Right. More confident dogs will take on dogs closer to their, their own size. Mm-hmm. Uh, or men, uh, dogs with less confidence, they'll target little dogs or old dogs or little kids. Puppies. You know, But I don't need that kind of information. But the thing is, this is not relaxing to the dog. The dog, you might as well take your dog for a walk in a war zone. Mm-hmm. And then it, it sets up a um, kind of like a, a domino effect yeah. because the dogs go out there, they pick up all these messages from all these other uh, wild and domestic animals. You know, if I catch you here, I'll knock your block off, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. The owners are uptight. Um, they get anxious. The dog knows this is that emotional contagion. All the dog knows is that my owner is anxious. The dog thinks he's perfect. So he checks out. What's changed? Oh, it's that guy Tom, coming toward us. Right. Oh, it's that dog. Better get him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I've, I've gone and through that before. And then you bring them home, and they fall asleep, mm-hmm. and they vocalize, and they twitch, because we know from functional MRI studies that animals do what we do. They replay their days in their sleep. They dream. Hmm. And whether they do it with weird symbols or whatever, I have no idea. But not only are they not getting restorative sleep, they are also not getting the restorative sleep they need to learn. Right. Because learning occurs during sleep. Right, and that that deep sleep of, of actually sleep. Yeah, deep sleep. So rather than taking... Your dog in a walk on a walk through a war zone. Take him on a short trip to relieve himself in your backyard in a secure space, and then bring him in and massage him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, relax him. Yeah, Re- relax him. So, you know. Wh- yeah. Let me ask you this, Myrna. In in your uh, opinion and, and in your experience, what I find is with the dogs that I work with uh, behaviorally. Um, is I, I want you to maybe talk to me a little bit about how you feel. What is the biggest difference between a truly aggressive dog, and I'm talking not a dog that you know may go over and tackle another dog. I'm talking about a dog that actually wants to go kill another dog because that's what, that's what they think they need to do versus a dog who's just, let's say, reactive or leash reactive or just on the leash and reactive. Um, a lot of times I find the true aggressive dogs, the dogs that are really malicious about what they want to do, typically aren't that vocal. They just go in and they, they do what they need to do. And a lot of the more insecure vocal dogs, the dogs that are making the most noise at the end of the leash, are typically the dogs who really have no intentions of 
doing anything that we, we may see or anything that it looks like they want to do. So what's your opinion on the difference between reactive dogs versus true aggression? Okay, if, let's, let's go back to ethology. Okay. Evolution rewards those who get the job done using the least amount of energy. Mm. So that a truly, truly dominant dog, and I do not see them for two reasons. They either do not have behavioral problems, or if they aggress, they're like people who have a 10th degree black belt and all the philosophy that goes with it. Mm -hmm. They do not waste energy. They do it, and they're done. Right. The majority of dogs I see are probably like the majority of dogs you see. Correct. They expend a tremendous amount of energy trying to avoid having to fight. You know, the animal species has learned a lesson that um, we humans haven't, and that is that nobody wins a fight. The winner is merely the one who loses the least. Mm. So, uh, and for a free-roaming animal, including a dog, even a small injury can mean death. You know, so they don't jump into it. But you see these dogs, well, let me give you a couple examples. Because, again, the history is everything. And all dogs have limits in terms of protection. So... Uh, let's look at two examples here. One uh, are dogs' behaviors in cars. Some dogs, you put them in a car, and they go berserk every time they see a dog or a mm-hmm. motorcycle or whatever. Mm-hmm. And some dogs will keep that up forever. But some dogs cut out at, 30, at 40 miles an hour. You start whipping you know, potential threats by them at that speed, and they say, I'm out of it, I'm going to sleep. Mm. Others, uh, you got to get on the highway, and then they settle down. So basically, these dogs are saying, "Okay, uh, I I will make a protective display at 35 miles per hour or slower." But it's not a big deal because they're safe, right? They're in a car. Right. Or let's take the dog who barks at everything that comes down the street in front of the house. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say, for example, that the owner takes the dog out for a walk around the neighborhood every day or maybe twice a day, and they make a loop. They go up one side of the street, and they come down the other, and they come back again. And during this walk, the dog marks the territory. So now everything that comes down the street is violating the dog's space. Right. So he sits at the window and barks and barks and carries on like, oh, yeah, if I catch you here, I'm going to kill you, blah, 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 <laughs> because he doesn't want to. The more energy they put into the display, the less confidence ah, they gotcha. have. Good. Yeah, that's what makes sense. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an inverse relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm... Defense I'm mechanism. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's... It's those quiet ones, and like I said, I don't see them yeah, um, because uh, their their stimulus um, levels are high. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if I mentioned this before, but 
There was a study done of two groups of people, a group of anxious people and a group of relaxed people. And the results of this mimic what I see in dogs. Uh, in this particular study, because humans are a visually, a detail vision species, mm-hmm. they showed them progressively threatening photographs. And as they expected, the more anxious people had a lower stimulus threshold, and when they hit it, they blew up more. They put more energy into their uh, response than the relaxed people. No one was surprised by that. Right. What made this study different is that they had these people hooked up to functional MRIs so they could actually see what was going on in their brains. And what wow. surprised them was when they looked at the F, uh, fMRIs, the anxious people were showing no to minimal response as they looked at these pictures until they hit their threshold, and then bam. What would, Whereas, what would they do physically? And um, so in a case of a dog, that's when, you know, it comes out of nowhere, right? That... Um, they're uneasy, but the average person misses it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't see that the dog is becoming upset. Um, and they miss all the, the little cues, and then all of a sudden, bam, there's the dog lunging. And they just haven't been paying attention on this. Uh, and just a little side note here, um, I have totally eliminated the sit command. <laughs> completely mm. for behavioral and also for for medical reasons. Tell me Be- tell me why behavioral. Behavioral is because it's what's called a sentinel position. Puts the dog vulnerable. How often do you see free roaming dogs sit? Mm. Yeah, they usually lay down. Yeah. Or they're walking around. Right. And in free roaming groups of dogs there will be one dog that sits and keeps an eye out on what's going on, and so the rest of the dogs can play or eat or mate or whatever. Mm. But a lot of times we use that sit command when we really want the dog to relax. Yes, yes, exactly. So right away we're giving the dog a mixed message. But in addition to that, uh, because of pre-adult span neuter and some other issues, I see a lot more dogs with hip and knee problems, uh, stifle problems. And sit is an awkward position mm-hmm. for them. And so it actually makes them feel more vulnerable. Right. So, so yeah, so now we've this dog, we can potentially wire this dog uh, to do the wrong thing. Yeah, because you're already pre- pre-exposing them to a vulnerable behavior or position. Yeah, and, and I... Yeah, and I I am not a big fan of putting dogs in frightful positions, in situations that we already know the dog is afraid of, Mm -hmm. and exposing them to that. What would be the the best thing for people who are listening to 
to do. Um, it's it sounds like what you're saying is, or, or what you are saying is, is the sit. So say we had a fearful dog and semi-fearful, just a little nervous, maybe a little growl, maybe a little uh, you know tongue out type thing, maybe just a little nervous. And you get another dog that walks by. What would be a good position? Would it be moving the dog around so they feel more comfortable because it's a natural state, opposed to obviously what you're saying now is is putting the dog into a position will put them under maybe more pressure, more stress, and uh, vulnerability. What would be something good for a dog owner to do in that situation? Well, to me, and actually in both of those situations, it's like, it's comparable to throwing a child into the deep end of the pool. Hmm. They might learn to swim. But they're never <laughs> they going not. to trust the person who did it. Right. Okay. Okay. So what I want those people to do is to develop, is to earn their dog's trust in a secure setting. And that means to me that you go back to almost to, you know, day, what, eight weeks or, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. with his puppy or earlier. And you don't take that dog out on the street for uh, a walk. You stay in your backyard, and as fast as you can, you do figure eight, zigzag, speed up, slow down, and you go wherever the hell you want to go. And I will tell you what will happen is that initially that dog might bump into you because that dog's used to you Mm -hmm. paying attention to the dog. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But once you do that, the dog, once this happens a couple times, most dogs will learn to position themselves at your side where they can best read your body language. They don't have to be looking at you. They just can read your body language. And now you start working as a team. And this irregular pattern is what in ethology is referred to as an anti predatory path. If you have a smart animal who is evading a predator, they do not run in a straight line. That Uh, is a fear-based reactive response. They use a diverting path. And so you're kind of putting yourself in uh, anti-predator mode. You're going where you want to go. You expect the, the dog to follow and the dog follows, and the dog learns to trust you to secure the space. Mm. Same way with who goes through the door first. Right. You go through the door first, Mm -hmm. because the person who goes through the door first secures the space. You wouldn't open the door and let your three-year-old go out first in a war zone. Right. Right. So, same thing. And, And the thing about these behaviors, though, is we want them automatic. We want to get that that command and that treat out of there. And one of the, the problems gotcha. with um, treat training, and, and some people accuse me of having a personal vendetta against B.F. Skinner, but yeah, okay, <laughs> I do want to have a chat with him in the afterlife, but I don't know that I want to go to hell. To, yeah. <laughs> you know, but anyhow, <laughs> moving on here. If you look at the way the the system was set up, that treat was out of there in two to three weeks max. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that even when trainers do this in a class, average class lasts six to eight weeks. So that by the end of the class, the dogs have been taught to learn for food 
And the owners have been taught to use food to teach their dogs. And that separates the owner from the dog. Mm -hmm. The food replaces trust. And trust, trust is the foundation of the human-animal bond. And trust is also a major component of what is referred to as the caregiver placebo effect. And the caregiver placebo effect jump starts mm-hmm. the pain suppression. It's ahead of the game. It is ahead of the pain behavioral and physical pain centers. So that when our dogs trust us, they can handle stuff better. Right. And I when I was I, I wrote a um bond and behavior uh, communications textbook for veterinarians. And in the process of writing this, I interviewed a lot of people whose animals had serious behavioral or medical problems. And I wanted to get a feel for what animals did the best. Mm-hmm. And do you know which ones did the best? Which ones? These were the animals who belonged to people who looked at the behavior or the medical problem, no matter how bad it was, and accepted it as normal and its treatment as normal for them and their owner and their pet at that time. Mm -hmm. They did not perceive their animals as flawed They did not perceive themselves as saints or martyrs for doing whatever they had to do to help the animal. They gave it no more emotional charge than they did to brushing their teeth or taking a shower. Hmm. So they just accepted the, the bad behaviors? They accepted them as normal because that's what they are. I mean, I I remember, again, back in the Dark Ages... When I became interested in mythology and realized that I was going to have to become an independent scholar mm-hmm. because nobody in this country gave a crap about it except the people who were studying wild animals. But it, it's always been the way things were done in, in Europe and in other countries. And I remember talking to my colleagues in Europe and I would talk about you know, this or that behavioral problem. And they would just roll their eyes and look at me, and they would say, that is not a problem behavior. That behavior is perfectly normal for that dog in that physical, mental, and emotional environment. If you change that environment, it will become maladaptive, and the dog will give it up. And it's true. And I see this when I bring dogs into my exam room, my consultation room, and we all calmly ignore them. All of those look at me, look at me, pay attention to me, owner, owner, because there might be a predator out there, and I might have to move to protect you, so I need you focused on me at all the time. Mm -hmm. By having the owner communicate confidence and calmness to these dogs, it relieves the dog of the need to do that. 
Right. So they don't have to waste time marking. They don't have to waste time barking. They don't have to waste time patrolling the space. They don't have to waste time leaning, nudging, licking, whining, jumping up, or otherwise trying to get their owners to pay attention to them to facilitate the protection of that person. They relieve the dog of all of that burden, and the dog can go to sleep. Yeah. It's, oh, it is so beautiful. Yeah, I, I get weepy just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I just did that with a with a German Shepherd um, who came in and it's very anxious at the end of the leash, jumping, whining, spinning, barking, etc. And I just put him at the end of the leash and I just walked back and forth and I just walked back and forth and I I took away the ability for him to make unruly decisions that he didn't have to make, which ultimately was making him nervous and anxious and. It's like giving a 10-year-old hyper on candy the keys to your car. It doesn't really make much sense. So, and, and you find that you know within 5 to 10 minutes of just kind of taking the wheel, I guess, uh, the dog's natural state of mind gets so much better. Well, and even, um, even letting the leash trail, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm sure you know as well as I do that there is nothing. The only thing worse than a leash for bringing out the most aggressive behavior in fearful dogs is a run. Um, and, of course, legally, morally, we have to do it, which is another, you know, this is another reason why I want to get this stuff under control at home. But you made a, a really interesting uh, point before that uh, I have encountered, which is another reason why I get these dogs off the street until we nail the basics mm-hmm. in a secure environment, is that a lot of times when our dogs have behavioral problems, we assume that everybody else's dogs are well-behaved. Right. Yeah. That's not that the lot. case. I see that a lot in group class. I say, oh, come to, you know, I think you're ready for a group. Maybe you should start doing some of these some of these uh, exercises, you know, in a group class around other dogs. Not with other dogs, around other dogs. And they are well, I have I have some dogs and, and German shepherds uh, because they're so doggone smart. Mm-hmm. I have had clients with uh, uh, German shepherd dogs after they nail the basics. Um, they clear it with a trainer, and they just come in and they observe the mm-hmm. class. And I have had situations when after the class, when the when it was over. And the trainer came up to the owner and said, uh, would you mind if I worked your dog? Mm-hmm. And that that dog did everything that she had taught in that class that day. Oh, wow. During That's that class. Cool. Um, and, I, and I know people who train uh, horses, in fact, some, you know, best trainers of horses. Uh, the first lesson, and this was um, out west, this is for like uh, barrel racing and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. First lesson was to ride with the, the, um, the owner and the trainer, went for a ride to a hill that overlooked the ring, and they sat there for an hour mm. and watched the ring. And you want to talk about learning patience and self-control. And as my dad always used to say, you can't sell from an empty wagon. We cannot expect our dogs to exhibit self-control and patience 
if we don't have it ourselves. That's very true. Yeah. And even if they obey a command under conditions in which we're losing it and we're anxious, that behavior is not going to be reliable because that dog obeyed that command in spite of us. Right. In spite of our physiology rather than with our support. Mm. And that that's something I and I know you gotta um I know you gotta take off soon here, but I wanted to just ask you, um, what is so I know that when you mentioned BF Skinner, um and I you know, the operant conditioning, I mean it's familiar with me because I'm a dog trainer and things like that. Um but when you talk about behavioralism and BF Skinner's um theories or tests or whatever um what is your big concern with your studies and your experience and and what you do what is your big concern with with what he does with operant conditioning and punishment versus positive and things like that well i i think my big problem and and is that this was a laboratory method Right. It was, right. and the purpose of the method was to get reproducible data. And in order to get reproducible data, according to the scientific method, the first thing you do is you eliminate the variables. Mm-hmm. And one of the variables that Skinner eliminated was canine cognition. Mm-hmm. Now, in all fairness, he did not believe that dogs were incapable of cognition. However, that is a heck of a confounding variable. Yeah. So he just pretended it didn't exist. And so for the sake of his research, this, re- this reduced learning to something um, closer to a simple reflex arc. So you had the command, the response, and the reward. And that was comparable to a physician hitting your knee with a mallet and your knee, your leg flew up. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it, it isn't, right? It isn't a, um, a simple reflex arc. And in fact, um, Skinner's own uh, students were aware of this, the Breelands. If you go online, it used to be online, you might still, um, you can find it. There is an article... Uh, called The Misbehavior of Organisms. Uh-huh. And it's by uh, the Breland, Marilyn and Kellerman. I'm not sure, but I do, I'm sure about the title. What happened? There were students of Skinner, and they started using this, um, you know, this, this type of training to train all different species of animals to do tricks, you know, uh, that they would use, you know, for people for entertainment. Sure. It's a a kind of stuff some trainers trainers still do. But the thing is that as they did this time and time again over multiple species of animals, they realized that the training would break down. At the time, they didn't realize why the training broke down. Mm-hmm. But when I went back and I analyzed um, the circumstances in which it occurred, it occurred when they were asking the animal to do something that was close to something 
that the animal normally would do for a completely different um, behavior. Hmm. So that, uh, for example, I there was something, there was a raccoon, and, and raccoons normally, they have very tactile front paws, and they, they feel their food, and they wash their food. Hmm. And what they wanted to do, they thought they would take advantage of that and teach the raccoon to, to pick up a, a coin and put it in a bank. And that would be the trick. A bank? But in, a, in like a piggy bank. Oh, okay, yeah. But the raccoon wouldn't do that consistently. The raccoon wanted to take the coin and, and do something else with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing about training versus ethology uh, is that Training is out of context, whereas ethology is in context. Hmm. If, if you watch a dog out in the yard or you watch a, a bitch raising puppies you know, and, and teaching her puppies, um, everything is in context. Everything is purpose-oriented, whereas when you teach a, a dog to sit just because I want you to sit or go down just because I want you to go down, regardless whether that's what we're doing, the dog's brain, the dog is capable of sequential thinking, right? And they are hardwired to get the job done using the least amount of energy. So then if the behavior is out of context, Mm. then the dog has to work a lot harder. So let, let me give you an example of this. Sure. Suppose you go through the usual training rigmarole to teach a dog a down command. Okay, step one, you have to teach the dog a word that means absolutely nothing to the dog. Right. So it's like me teaching you something in a foreign language. Right. And then sometimes you lure the dog, maybe lure the dog's head down with a treat. Uh, or something like yeah. that. Okay, yeah. and eventually the the dog does it, and then you say good down. Okay, now compare that to walking through the room, or whenever you see your dog or your puppy lying down, you say good down. Now, in this situation, you are putting an unknown word to a behavior that the dog is displaying in a context that makes sense to the dog. Because they're, so then, already, sorry, cause yeah, they're, they're already in the down position. They're already in the down position, and they are in the relaxed mental state that goes with that. So they, they, they're displaying the whole package. You know, they're not just dropping because, you know, they got zapped. I mean, they, you know, everything about the physical and mental environment said this is a good place to down. So they down. And so you mark it by putting this alien word to it. So you keep doing this. Well, the thing is that if you teach a dog uh, to associate this word with a down in the con- in context for the dog, in that small percentage of the time when it really matters and you give that down command, like seriously, down, that yep. dog will yep. drop. That dog will drop. That dog will accept 
the exception because the dog has learned the rule. Right, because they already naturally did it. And a lot of times, a lot of times that's a form of free shaping a behavior, um, which means you kind of just wait for the dog to do it, and they do it, you mark it with a verbal cue and or with food or a tug. or a Yeah, and, and, that's, and basically what it is is doing... Why why do we make such a big process? <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I want to I want to know Yeah, your, I know. I want to know um, your opinion on um like the idea of so like my thing is is um I think you were you're talking about behavioralism earlier, I think um and talking about canines and wolves and um I I spent quite a bit of time with wolves for like 5 years out in Colorado and just watching and studying and um watching them correct puppies and, uh, you know, and, and when we say corrections to the general public, it, it, it's, it automatically, you're presumed and you're assumed that you're beating dogs and you're being physical and you're trying to be mean or big and bad when in actuality there's so many different types of punishment that none of that really matters uh, under, you know, depending on what you do, you know, whatever. So my point is, is what's your opinion on... If you te- so if you teach a dog, even if you free shape a dog a down, um, which means exactly what you were saying before of the dog goes down, lays down, you come up with food, say good down, good down, you're marking that behavior. And like you said, I tell my clients the same thing. I say it, you don't have to say down. You can say popcorn for all I care. It doesn't matter. They're still going to do the behavior once you mark it and you, you, you mark the behavior with a verbal command. What's your opinion on having a dog... Um, that knows the command very well, um, but then in, in, in a realistic environment, say the dog knows heel or down, two examples, and then you put them into an environment with high stimulation, such as maybe another dog in the other end of the room that they want to go play with. So what's your opinion on what's the line you have to cross where the dog clearly has established these behaviors and these commands very, very clearly and your relationship is nice and clean where you say Fido down, the dog downs, good down, uh, Fido, Fido heel, the dog heals. What, a, what opinion do you have on giving the dog some sort of pressure? It doesn't have to be a physical pain. It doesn't have to be anything really too negative. It just has to be some sort of pressure, whether it's body pressure, verbal pressure, where you're, you know, your, your voice will change, things like that. When the dog decides to look at you and say, I don't want to. What's your opinion on all of that? Would this be before or after you hit yourself over the head with a rolled up newspaper? <laughs> this would be, this would be, because for me, you know, working with as many dogs as I do and many different trainers and things like that, um, I, and I, and I understand what you were saying earlier about setting the dog up for success, which means if you see another dog in the other end of the room, but you inevitably have to, you have to go through that process, meaning you, you literally can't cross the other side of the road, um, you know, whatever. You're in a situation where you can't avoid the situation and the dog completely disengages with you and says, I don't care about your food, like you were saying before. The- right, but, and what I am saying is that... The bond is not there. So the relationship. Uh, I think in my second book, I called it the invisible leash because mm-hmm. that's what the bond is. The trust is there. And 
it takes time, it's, it takes patience. I think one of the, the biggest problems I see with some trainers is they're control freaks. Too much control, right. Too much control. They are, and, and they, they put dogs in out-of-context situations, and then they grade the dog. And th- the problem is, this goes back to what I, I mentioned before, is that the, you wind up with a dog whose behavior is unreliable because the trust isn't there. Uh, I uh, often go through this with clients. They are constantly giving their dogs commands for this, that, mm-hmm. and the other thing uh, because they need to give the commands. And, and like, you know, and they have these rituals when they feed the dog and the dog, and it's like, you know, mm-hmm. out of the kitchen. And then the dogs come into the kitchen, now sit, now down, whatever. I mean, no wonder the dog has irritable bowel syndrome. But nice. aside from that, when I say to them, don't do, don't give any commands. Yeah. Just, just think it. Just look at the dog and think of it. Just think. Out of the kitchen. You know how to do this. Out of the kitchen. And the dog goes out of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know? And then the dog comes in. Why would you put a dog on a sit before they eat anyhow? I have no idea. Um, and, you know, meal time should be relaxed. Mm-hmm. The last, last thing we need for a dog who is fear aggressive is, and who's got is, has a real high probability of being uh, hypermodal to begin with mm-hmm. is to anxiety at mealtimes. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I just, you know, we're, we're coming from kind of like a different world. You know, we talked about, or I mentioned, you mentioned kids, <clears throat> I mentioned toddlers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are, there are things, um, there are times when as parents we blow it and we inadvertently set them up to fail and we have to do something to get them out of that situation and whatever it takes. And I will tell you that most of the time, and I have seen this with dogs and I have seen this with kids too, that when uh, the owner or the parent goes disciplines that dog um, or that child, uh, nine times out of ten, it is a fear-fight response. They are so terrified of what might have happened that they lose it. The owners? The owners, yeah. And I'll tell you something else. It's about two hours later when they settle down, they go and they buy the, they feed the dog a dish of ice cream or right. give the kid a cookie, you know. So it's, it's not productive. If you're going to do it, if the dog does something wrong, the tone of voice is, you can do it with a tone of voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the abandon all hope tone of voice. I mean, I use an example for my clients. I have a brother and a sister, and between the three of us, we probably have enough degrees to choke a horse. Mm -hmm. My mom could be resurrected from the grave 
and all of her 90 pounds scrawniness with her 8th grade education give any one of us the look yeah. and that would be it Yep. that's what I want for my clients now that's an interesting subject so that and I want to talk through this a little bit. That that look. So a lot of times for me, that look would be fear. And it's not a negative fear. It's not like I'm afraid you're going to beat me or I'm afraid you're going to cause physical pain. A lot of times that fear is like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble regardless. I don't care what that trouble means to you. So it doesn't, again, and again, talking to the dog people out there, um, I, I don't want to... I don't want to. I, I I don't want to generalize that that trouble or punishment means physical pain. That's not what I'm trying to to say. I'm just saying that that fear of getting in trouble by somebody who's in charge is what's going to stop you from doing what you think you should be doing. Is that is that what? Well, you're I, and I think this you know that look is something. Uh, that you have to practice, <laughs> that you have to stand in front of a mirror and practice and practice and practice. Because especially now and especially if you live in a suburban area and your dog is out there and your dog misbehaves, I mean, there is no, sh- there is no shortage of lawyers out there, <laughs> okay? I mean, there's a lot of stuff to be worried about. Right. Yeah, a, a, a tremendous amount, and that, that again, this goes back to the symbolism that people attach to their dogs, mm-hmm. and your whole life can change. And remember, way back when, oh my God, a long time ago, um, we were talking about that truly, truly dominant dog. Mm-hmm. Okay, and cold, energy efficient. And it's it's not daring the dog. It 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 is above that. It transcends that. Um, I have a, a friend who is who is in special ed, and he was working with kids with you know really out of control kids for a lot of reasons. And his favorite statement, and he was always one step ahead of those kids. And his favorite statement was, don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. So it's that mindset, you know. And I, and I think getting into the uh, one step ahead instead of one step behind is really, really important. Because as soon as we start thinking, what if, what if, what if, what if, we have just thrown ourselves and our little brains into anxiety mode. Mm -hmm. And heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, dog knows it. And the dog is going to look at that other dog and think, ah, you're the problem. You're the problem. problem." And want to go for him. Yeah. I have a a case study on that on my YouTube channel, actually. Every time another dog came out, the owner's behavior and breathing and body posture would all change. I have it all on video. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back to what I was talking about before. If you, you know, when you say you have a, a wolf puppy, I have a lot of footage of this as well. You have a wolf puppy that comes over to another wolf. It doesn't have to be the head of the pack or the alpha or whatever. 
you should get an adolescent wolf puppy coming up to a, another wolf as they're chewing on an elk bone. That wolf is going to turn around and correct the puppy, showing their teeth, pinching them, grabbing them, throwing them away, and then the puppy said, okay, sorry, that was a bad mistake. What's your opinion on giving that type of pressure to a dog who knows better, who is ignoring you, who is downright not fear-aggressive, because obviously you never want to put a lot of pressure on a fear-based dog, because it can certainly make it worse and make things way worse than it is. But what about a dog that is just strong-headed and... And I'm saying this because I, I agree with you on everything that you're saying with building the relationship and, and having that bond before you even walk out into the playing field. But as you and I know, 90, 90 high, let's say nine, high 90s% of the people aren't even, they don't even know how to put on their, their jerseys. I mean, these guys, a lot of dog owners have no idea what they have. And I, I just you know, walking through the process of behavioralism or even a little bit of the operant conditioning that Skinner um, did back in the day. Is there a, is there a balanced approach um, of, of giving a dog some sort of pressure if they know right from wrong and they still decide to cross the road without looking or they still decide to say, I still want to nip that person in the butt because I feel like I can and then it makes the, the owner less of a person? Um, because I understand, and that's I, I think I talked about that in my one of my first podcasts is it's relationship and 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 bonding over everything. Once you have that, you don't need equipment, you don't need leashes, really, you don't need much. But to the nine, the high nineties percent of people out there, such as dog owners, who are dealing with all these behavioral problems with no structure, like you said, that they need guidance and they need somebody to tell them what they can and can't do, especially these fear-based dogs. What's your opinion on applying any type of pressure to a dog who knows right from wrong but still makes a decision to say, I don't care what you say? Well, I, I think the problem is that if you make such a statement, you have to be physically and mentally prepared for the dog not to accept it. And the thing is, you have the advantage here. Males have higher testosterone levels. And whether it's politically incorrect or not, higher testosterone levels communicate higher status. And this has nothing to do with violence. It has to do with testosterone's role of getting energy to the muscles faster. So guys can get away with things that women can't. And so we have to be we have to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, going back to energy, uh, a friend of mine uh, studied uh, maternal behavior in in dogs. Mm. And one of the things he was looking at, there was a period of time when the so-called scruff shake was. Uh, it appeared in the literature as a way, a natural way to discipline a puppy. And what he discovered from uh, collecting data from a lot of different breeders is that the breeders had all decided that those particular uh, bitches lacked good maternal skills and they would never breed them again. So this goes back to energy. Right? Mm-hmm. It's taking that in individual too much 
energy to do something that could have been done uh, more effectively with less energy. That said, one of the, the problems with your, your wolf studies mm-hmm. is that just by virtue of observing them and having them captive wolves, that changes the dynamic tremendously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are a lot of different factors involved here. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but I'm going to have to go here. Okay. All right, Mara. <laughs> I appreciate your time very, very much. Um, I, I really yeah, clean this up for me, will you? <laughs> oh, no. Everything was great. Everything was great. I appreciate the conversation, and um, I look forward to, to uh, talking to you in the future. We, we can totally do this again. I really appreciate it. And have Yeah, a- I think you, you've noticed I... I tend to be a, um, I'm, I'm more like an animal in that I, I think in patterns from working with animals. Uh, so I, I love it. You have a lot of, yeah, but it, it makes it, yeah, it makes it hard to talk about a topic though. I know it does. I'm the same way. I'm, I'm all over the place. I I have so much yeah, and I have so much passion and, and, and research that I, I, I'm the same way, but I really appreciate it. You, you've given me a ton of great knowledge, and I'm sure everyone out there is really going to appreciate all the knowledge that you've, you've provided us today. Really quick, before you jump off the phone, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Um, you can visit my website, which is just mmilani.com, M-M-I-L-A-N-I.com. Uh, I do a commentary every month, a podcast every other week except I'm taking some time off for the holidays. Um, and uh, there's search engine on there. There's a bunch of stuff on there. And, uh, well, thank you. Well, that's pretty much it. Yes, thank you, Mona, so much. And you You're have welcome. a wonderful day, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you guys so very much for listening to this episode of the No Bad Dogs podcast with me and Myrna Malini. It was so refreshing and so nice to talk to somebody with different but very similar aspects and outlooks of dog behavior and canine behavior. And there's so much to learn from each other in the dog world. I feel very grateful uh, to be able to, to do so. And so thank you, Myrna, for jumping on the No Bad Dogs podcast. I hope you guys at home learned something. I know I certainly did. Very, very informative, um, and it's really, again, it's just really refreshing to learn from somebody who has different techniques and different styles and different approaches and two different worlds as far as handling and just really, really great, very, very knowledgeable, super um, happy I got to sit down and talk to her, and you guys got to witness that and, and listen and learn. So if you guys could, just leave a review on this podcast, the No Bad Dogs podcast with me, Tom Davis. You can follow me on Instagram at Tom Davis or our business page at Upstate Canine Academy. Visit me online at americascanineducator.com. Thank you guys so very much, and we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.